Genesis 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And the day that God created him, in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them, and blessed them, and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And Adam lived a hundred and thirty years, and begat a son in his own likeness, after his image, and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam, after he had begotten Seth, were eight hundred years, and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were nine hundred and thirty years, and he died. And Seth lived an hundred and five years, and begat Enos. And Seth lived after he begat Enos eight hundred and seven years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Seth were nine hundred and twelve years, and he died. And Enos lived ninety years, and begat Canaan. And Enos lived after he begat Canaan eight hundred and fifteen years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enos were nine hundred and five years, and he died. And Canaan lived seventy years, and begot Mahalaleel. And Canaan lived after he begot Mahalaleel eight hundred and forty years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Canaan were nine hundred and ten years, and he died. And Mahalaleel lived sixty and five years, and begat Jared. And Mahalaleel lived after he begot Jared eight hundred and thirty years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Mahalaleel were eight hundred ninety and five years, and he died. And Jared lived an hundred and sixty-two years, and begat Enoch. And Jared lived after he begot Enoch eight hundred years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Jared were nine hundred and sixty and two years, and he died. And Enoch lived sixty and five years, and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begot Methuselah three hundred years, and begot sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were three hundred and sixty-five years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. You may be seated. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. And that was a verse that I had thought of beginning with before you, John P., had a sermon on meekness. Thank you for that. And to walk humbly with thy God. The title that I've chosen today is Walking with God. Walking with God. The passage that Dave just read so well is a pretty depressing one, isn't it? It's a, it refutes what Satan said there in the garden that day when he told Adam and Eve, thou shalt not surely die. Genesis 5, well, the funeral bell just keeps tolling and tolling. So people, oh, men are born and they have sons and daughters and they die. Except that, that, funeral bell and the tolling of it is interrupted when we get to talk about the person who walked with God, his name was Enoch. Enoch walked with God. 
The Bible says that in verse 22, and then again in verse 24. It's repeated for us. It's something that we should notice. It's something that we should get. Enoch walked with God, and the title for the sermon is Walking with God. The Bible does have quite a bit to say about one's walk of life. And through the course of the sermon here today, we hope to notice a few of them, probably not nearly all, about things that the Bible says about walking and our walk of life. Uh, I'd especially like to think of three angles, uh, have three sections of walking, walking with God. Uh, the first section will be in the Old Testament. The second section then has to some thoughts about walking and then going to the New Testament and seeing what a, a number of verses having to do with Walking with God. So the first section, thinking about here in the Old Testament, way back here, at the, pretty much at the dawn of human history, back in Genesis 5, the man Enoch, thinking about him just a little bit more. And Stuart Uren says of him, and I quote from Mr. Uren, while only a handful of verses in the Bible mention Enoch, he stands out as arguably the most righteous man who ever lived apart from Christ. Um, is, is that something that you can go along with? Is that something you had thought about? Well, we agree with the part that there's only a handful of verses, don't we? Uh, but Enoch is spoken about in three verses here in Genesis. Genesis 5, then hardly again until New Testament where a couple of the writers of scripture pick up on Enoch and say just a couple things about him. So as we think about Enoch, let's think about the times, before we think about him and his testimony, let's think about the times that he lived in. What kind of times, what was the culture like? Um, what was going on? Well, we can get a good glimpse of that in chapter 4, the end of chapter 4 of Genesis, looking at verses oh, 16 and following, uh, especially zeroing in on verse 20, 21, and 22. The, time, the times that Enoch lived in were times of great discovery and tremendous advances in human knowledge and human work. Notice in verse 20, there was great things happening and a lot of it was being learned um, in agriculture. Cattle. Verse 21 having to do with music. And this, this man, Jubal, uh, made some advances probably in musical instruments, took a piece of wood and, and fashioned it and was able to make some nice sounding sounds and music had to do with entertainment or worship. Verse 22, iron and brass. Not only did people back in those days were able to work with wood and, and use that for advantage, but this man... Tubal Cain learned about iron working, metal, industry in other words. Tremendous and swift advances. And there was a couple of reasons I think for that, for how people 
were able to come up with all kinds of inventions. One of them was simply that God had created man, Adam and Eve, with great intelligence. Sure did. Sure did. Um, evolution is out of the picture. Certainly not. Man was created with great intelligence and ability. A second reason why they were able to advance so quickly is simply because they lived so long. And can you imagine what you have learned in the last 20 years? And if you could keep le learning, not for another 50 or 60, if you're a 30-year-old, uh, but for hundreds of years. So it was an, a time, the times of Enoch were times of great progressiveness scientifically. And as I was studying for this and thinking about that, I remembered that back in the 1980s, I had picked up a used book with the title, Did Genesis Man Conquer Space? I never read that book, but I thought about it as I, uh, again and, and was actually able to find it. Maybe that would be something that you'd be interested in. Uh, maybe you should critique that book for me. If you'd like to, that book, I'd be glad to lend it to you. Did Genesis Man Conquer Space? Someone has said, still thinking about an age of progressiveness, especially in the scientific level, that if everything that man learned from the creation or to the beginning of, from the beginning of created, of of history until 1845, if that, all that learning could be said to be an inch, this man went on to say that in the next hundred years, from 1845 to 1945, man was able to learn a lot more, and that would be like three inches. And then from 1945 to 1975, uh, the, the learning that was accomplished, uh, men um, learning from each other and being able to advance higher was like the Washington Monument, it was said. If that is indeed the case, now it's another 45 years since 1975, how far would learning be? How high would it be? Could, it would almost seem like with the explosion of knowledge on all kinds of fronts in our time that maybe the equivalent would be to the moon or something like that, don't you think? Probably not quite to Mars yet. So it was a, the times that Enoch lived in, scientifically progressive. Also very spiritually perverted. And we need to notice that in verse 23 of Genesis 4. Um, and those... Versus uh, what is pictured there about Lamech and his two wives. So there was marital perversion. There was violence and murder and boasting and pride and unforgiveness. All of that can easily be seen in, in those couple of verses at the end of Genesis 4. Then going to Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6. And it's where it, the Bible says, and God saw, and we're thinking about how spiritually perverted the times were, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Spiritually perverted. 
terribly wicked is the word used in verse 5 and terribly evil is the word used in verse 5. And that wickedness and evil doing came to full flower I think in the life of Lamech and, and after that from the time of Cain to the time of his uh, great 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 grandson Lamech the spiritual perversion came to full flower and I just would like you to notice especially God's response to all that Genesis 6.6 6. it repented God that he had made it it grieved him at his heart terrible times so having thought of that the great progress that was being made on the human level but the terrible perversion that and downward spiral that was happening on the spiritual level Enoch's times let's think now about his testimony did he have a testimony if we go to Genesis no Hebrews 11.5 it says for before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God his testimony was that he pleased God he had a testimony I think he had a testimony with God and with the people that he lived around and lived with he walked with God for 300 years Genesis 5 says says it right out loud there in verse 22 for 300 years he walked with God and he pleased God Hebrews 11 5 and Jude 14 and 15 tells us clearly that he was a prophet in fact he might have been the first prophet I'm not sure about that And if you look in Jude 14, verses 14 and 15, you're welcome to turn there and just notice that in verse 15 it tells us, gives us a sampling of his message of what he would preach as a, as a prophet in that day. And interesting to me that the word ungodly is mentioned four times. He, he was a prophet that especially majored in ungodliness and spoke against the ungodliness of the day. Now that day had a lot of evil and wickedness. Genesis 6, 5. What is, how is ungod, what is ungodliness as compared to evil and wickedness? I would just say that evil and wickedness is terrible um, outright overt sins but ungodliness is a little bit different than that in, in that it's just without God it's kind of humanistic it is humanistic it's humanism uh, defined really of being able to live without God not necessarily evil and terribly wicked and immoral but just ungodly able to thinking that one is able to live and to be fulfilled and to live without God ungodliness he lived in a day of great Enoch lived in a day of great wickedness and evil terrible did but he spoke against ungodliness why do you think that is I'm just guessing that's because terrible sins begin with ungodliness ungodliness is the first step down that slippery slope to terrible immoral and violent sins uh, 
I think that should speak to us today. Most of us um, aren't that awfully tempted with terrible, outright, violent, immoral sins, but we are tempted. Am I right in this? Or am I the only one like this? Well, we are tempted to ungodliness and subconsciously thinking that we can do it ourselves. That's the epitome of ungodliness. Enoch, in his testimony and in his prophesyings and in his preaching, spoke against ungodliness. I think we, here in the 21st century after Christ, should be listening and hearing. He had a testimony. Hebrews 11.5 makes that clear. Apparently, others knew, saw his life, and it made an impression on them. Why do I say that? Because the Bible says there in Hebrews 11.5 that he was not found. The implication is, of course, that after he was translated, that people looked for him. And interestingly, that people did that when Elijah was translated as well. He, that's part of his te testimony of those two worthies, that people looked for them. They, after they left... People wondered and I think were helped. Enoch's testimony, I would say, was that he walked with God. He pleased God. He found grace to walk. Even in that terrible time in which he lived, terribly ungodly, sinful, wicked, evil time in which he lived, he found grace to walk in a life of purity and godliness and meekness. He did that, I remind you, without the Bible. Because there was none really at that point. And I think it might be right to say that he did that without the aid of the Holy Spirit. Think about that. Here we have the Bible. We have the Holy Spirit to guide us and lots of other spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. We also live in terrible times of wickedness and ungodliness. Both the overt sins and the more, what we would say, cleansed sins, although there's nothing like that. But the contrast between wickedness and ungodliness. He could live an Enoch life in a Lamech world. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that Purely by the grace of God. What about you? What about me? We also can. Thank God for his grace. Because where sin abounded, the Bible says grace did much more abound. And the title, remember, is Walking with God. As we think about that, how that he walked with God in a Lamech world... We too have everything that we need. He has given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Thank God for Jesus. Thank God for the truth of the Bible. Thank God that there is victory in Jesus. Well, we've talked about Enoch's times. We've talked about his testimony. Let's think now about his, just for a little bit about his translation, which is the word again used in Hebrews 11.5. One eventful day, God took him home. He took him. 
we would say he was raptured. That's kind of the New Testament way of looking at it, wouldn't it? Isn't it? And I, and I just wonder if he, like Elijah, knew it was coming. Remember, Elijah knew it was coming. It would be interesting to know if, if Enoch had been revealed that today is the day. Doesn't, I don't know. But one, just to say that one eventful day in the future, we don't know when, God will call a whole generation of Enoch's home when that rapture comes. Even so come Lord Jesus. So we talked about Enoch here in the Old Testament. The second section that we'd like to think about together is that of walking. Walking, the title, walking with God. What about walking? Walking in the scripture as well as the way that we use it is often used in a figurative or a figure of speech kind of a way. We talk about the walk of life, our walk of life. We talk about taking a walk down memory lane and those kind of things. And we un it all has a literal meaning. We understand what it means. But it's done in a figure of speech. Walking. Walking. You can walk and so can I. But in the figure of speech kind of way, walking denotes, I would suggest, um, progress, right? Slow and steady. But when we walk, we progress and we head toward a goal. Slow and steady. Walking denotes progress. And even so, especially in the, the spiritual plane, as we walk with God, as we walk with God, that we are making spiritual progress as we head toward our goal, as we head toward heaven. Walking, it denotes progress. I would say that walking also indicates, as we walk with God, it indicates agreement with God. Can you think of an Old Testament verse that would indicate that? Remember in Amos 3.3 3 it says, Can two walk together except they be agreed? So, not only does walking indicate progress, whether physically or spiritually, but it also indicates harmony and agreement. As we walk with God, as, as Enoch walked with God, and as we walk with God, it indicates that there is harmony and peace there. And somebody has said, and I, I quote, what happens when we walk with someone? Imagine that you and a close friend are enjoying a walk down a country lane. You are in close proximity. You talk, laugh, listen, and share your hearts. Your attention is focused on this person to the exclusion of almost everything else. You notice the beauty around you or an occasional distraction, but only to point it out to your companion. You share it together. You are in harmony and you both enjoy the peaceful camaraderie. Can you imagine Enoch relating to God in that way as they walk, as he walked, as Enoch walked with God? The other question, can you imagine yourself? Can I imagine myself enjoying and relating to God the Father in that way as we spiritually together 
God and I walk toward heaven. Walking. So to sum that up, walking is, has to do with progress. Walking certainly has to do with agreement. To sum it up, walking, or one's walk of life, really has to do with our life, our lifestyle. Walking in scripture, and we often use it that way too, our walk is our lifestyle. It's what we are. Walking. Let's go to the third section. And for that, if you would turn please to the book of Ephesians. Did you know that if the book of Ephesians talks a lot about walking? So we talked, we're thinking about how Enoch walked with God. And then we thought just for a little bit about walking and what all that indicates and the figures of speech that that conjures in our minds. Now on to the book of Ephesians. And as I just remember that when I was a boy, probably a teenager, I remember that Aaron Lapp said one time that your Bible should wear out first in Ephesians. So, here we are in Ephesians, and maybe you want to check to see how your Bible looks there. Ephesians. Long ago, back in the 50s, I think, Watchman Nee wrote a commentary on the book of Ephesians, and he called it, and he titled it, what did he title it? Do you know, you older men? Sit, Walk, Stand. That was the title of his book on, a commentary on Ephesians. Sit, Walk, Stand. Now why would he have entitled it thus? I think he would say, Mr. Nee would have said, that Ephesians kind of naturally falls into three sections. The first section has to do with sitting, the second one with walking, and the third one with standing. Just to develop that just a little bit, you can look at Ephesians 1.20 and see that God there in our King James Bibles set Jesus... at his own right hand in the heavenly places. And that word set, we would say, in our modern English, we would call, say seated. He, God, seated Jesus at his own right hand. And then going on to verse 6 of chapter 2, we notice that the same thing has happened to us as God's children. God hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The first three chapters, broadly speaking, in the book of Ephesians have to do with our position in Christ and how that God is up there in heaven sitting at God's right hand. Jesus is up there sitting at God's right hand and we also already, even though we're still living here, are actually already sitting in heavenly places. We're sitting, sit, walk, stand. The walk section of Ephesians, again broadly speaking, is chapters 4 and 5. And then you would remember how that in chapter 6, the Bible twice says, um, it's in verse 13, the very end of verse 13, and the very beginning of verse 14, that uses the term walk. No, stand. And having done all to stand, 
stand therefore. So the Christian life is that of sit, walk, stand. We're already sitting in heavenly places because of what God through Christ has done for us. It's now up to us that we walk that we walk in a good way and also that we stand. Sit, walk, stand. We want to talk about standing, about walking here today. And in that section of Ephesians that, that could be titled Walking, chapters 4 and 5, there are five verses that talk about how the Christian's walk should be. For the first one, look at 4.1, where the Bible says that we are to walk worthy. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. That phrase, walk worthy, especially, is what we're thinking of and looking at. Walk worthy. And worthy, that word worthy in the original, I understand, um, gives us the idea of an old-time balance scale. You know, before the modern ones came along, they had balances well, on this side and on this side, and they, you would weigh things, and things, to weigh something, you would try to make them balance. A uh, weight here and a counterweight here, you know, balance. Walk worthy. So, and what is to be equal in our Christian life? Walk worthy. I think it's pretty clear that, to me, the picture is clear that on one side is our position in Christ. What is our position in Christ? Remember, we're already seated at the right hand of God. Ephesians 2.6. We're already sitting in heavenly places. And that is a high position. Thank you, Lord. And it's so important that us as Christians, that, that, that our walk of life is worthy of that or balances with that. It's, it's a terrible testimony to those around us if this is our position, but our walk is like this. God is calling us, God is calling all of us as Christians that, that, our, that we walk worthy, that our position and our actual walk of life are equal on a high plane. Walk worthy. Moving on to the second one, the second verse that has to do here in Ephesians 4 and 5 that has to do with walking. Look at verse 17 of chapter 4. And this is given in the opposite way in the sense that it's a negative one and it says how we should not walk. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Walk not in the vanity of your mind. Walk not in vain in the vanity of your mind. Now Gentiles in general but Greeks in particular in the ancient world were the, the Greeks especially prized learning and using your head and de 
deduction. They valued and prized uh, the mindset of, of what one can think and figure out here, up here, up here in the head, in the mind. And notice the vanity of their mind. Walk not, in other, not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. The Romans, which came, yeah, the Romans here in Bible times knew and kind of liked how that the Greeks were extra good at figuring things out, mind, you know. And so they would often try to hire Greek people that were well-educated using their minds um, as a teacher for their children or as a manager for their businesses. Now Paul here, in Ephesians 4.17, you know that Paul was well-versed in Greek philosophy. Yeah, he was a Jew, and he didn't have much, but he understood the Greek, the Greek mind as well as the Roman mind. He was well-versed in all of that, but always brought people back to the Lord. He was well-versed there, but he here insists, just like always, that this human effort, this you know, figuring things out, the, the Greeks actually thought that almost any issue, any problem that could come along could be figured out in their head. And that, again, is humanism. That's ungodliness. Humanism. Ungodliness is simply doing life, doing, being successful in life without God. Putting him out to the edge or putting him off completely because I can row my own boat. I can live my own life. That's ungodliness. And it's the beginning of the slippery slope toward terrible, un terrible overt sins of the flesh of all kind. And again, I just remind us, because I think that I need it, that that is the issue that we face more than the terrible sins. Although ungodliness is just as terrible. So the Greek mind and the culture of the day, the, wor the worldview of the day that they lived in back in New Testament times was that of ungodliness, humanism, figuring it out myself. And Paul insists here, as he does elsewhere, that that mindset, that worldview of the mind, being all that a person needs, is futile. That's what vanity means. Walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind. That's futile, it's empty, it's counterproductive. Don't walk like that. Do walk worthy of what God has called us to. You know, a balance where our position in Christ and our walking in is both at a high level. But don't walk in the vanity of your mind. It rem all of that reminds me of a song that was popular back in the 70s when I was a teenager growing up uh, it went something like here's some of the words that I can still remember only Jesus fills the longing that is burning in each heart I found through trial and error only Jesus satisfies 
Others of you that are in your 60s might be able to, to hum that or say more words than that. But that's the ones I remember. Only Jesus fills the longing that is burning in each heart. I found through trial and error, only Jesus satisfies. Don't walk in the vanity of your mind where you are your own master. No, no, no. Walk worthy. Don't walk in the vanity of your mind. Thirdly, going to 5.2 of Ephesians, you see it there, don't you? And walk in love. Not only walk worthy, not only don't walk in the vanity of your mind, but walk in love. Walk in love. And if we go back two verses, back to Ephesians 4.32, that verse gives a different twist, gives a different concept of what love really is. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted. That would certainly speak of love, right? Kindness, tenderheartedness, that's love. But then it goes on to say, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. And I need that. That's a truth that I need. The great proof of my love for you is how well I can forgive you. The great proof of how much Jesus loves you is how much he forgave you and how completely he forgave you on the cross of Calvary. Think of his love for us. And as we're thinking about love today, love and forgiveness are really synonymous terms. How much do you love God and others? Well, you, you can gauge that, and so can I, by how much I forgive my brothers. Walk in love. Walk in love. Another proof is simply... Yeah, of how much love I have is simply how much I appreciate God's forgiveness. When I really, when I really sense and understand and remember how much God forgave me, certainly that should bring uh, have love flowering in my life, forgiveness for each other for those around me. As I think about that, um, let me just read a couple quotes on that subject. This is by John MacArthur. Love equals forgiveness. Love equals forgiveness. Because forgiveness is the supreme evidence of God's love, it will also be the most convincing proof of our love. Love will always lead us to forgive others, just as love led God in Christ to forgive us. Nothing more clearly discloses a hard, loveless heart than lack of forgiveness. Lack of forgiveness betrays lack of love. The presence of forgiveness always proves the presence of love because only love has the motive and power to forgive. The extent of our love is the extent of our ability to forgive. A little later on he says, Unforgiveness is also a measure of unbelief. Let me try that again. Unforgiveness is also a measure of unbelief because the person who feels no need for forgiveness feels no need for God. 
And a person who feels no need for God is, a godless, is an ungodly person, I would add. And one more quote from John MacArthur. The person who sees the greatness of his own forgiveness by God's love will himself in love be forgiving. We are also, according to Ephesians 5.8, called as God's children to walk as children of children of light. Children of light. We were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Children of light. As I think of that, I just think of a friend of mine that I learned to know a long time ago. Warren Heaston became a Christian when he was an adult after a, a life of oh, drunkenness and all those that go, things that go along with it. You know, wickedness, evil living. It wasn't just ungodly, but it was wicked and evil life that he led. And he became a Christian and began walking in the light. But he kept smoking. For a while. Until the Lord, uh, the Holy Spirit, I don't think people talked to him about that. I think the Lord spoke to him about that. I think the Holy Spirit directed him that after a good while of being a Christian and smoking, I think that can happen. I think that can be the case for some. But after a while, the Holy Spirit spoke to him and he quit smoking. I think that he, like lots of other people, had wanted to quit various times before but didn't have the power but this time as a children of as a child of light God helped him quit smoking and that to me that's a wonderful picture of being a child of light we are to called to walk in the light walk in the light and sometimes God even after one has been a Christian for 40 years or more or 50 years God will come and say yeah but what about this and then if I'm a child of light, then I work by his grace and by his power on that weakness and that sin in my life. Children of light. Now, now the other thing about Warren Heaston is that he mentioned to me one time that he had been over at Leola Produce Auction and had bought some watermelon or cantaloupe or something. And the... Mennonite man that sold it to him as, as they were tossing them, I guess, from one bin to Warren's truck. Warren noticed that this Mennonite man had cigarettes in his pocket. And that was... Uh, he couldn't figure that one out. And I just say that to say that God certainly was work, hopefully working in that Mennonite man. But we are called to be children of light. Not, and to let our light shine in this world. And God forgive us where we give the wrong testimony to those people that are watching, which they are. Children of light. The last one in, here in Ephesians 5, verse 15 
And I remind you that we are called as God's children to walk worthy of what we're called. We are called to not walk in the vanity of our mind. We are called to walk in love. God is calling us to walk as children of light. And we are also, verse 15, instructed and commanded to walk circumspectly. Not as fools, but as wise. Circumspectly. What does that mean? Circumspectly. Well, the prefix there, circum, has to do, dictionary.com says, with going around or roundabout or around. You know, like a circle. A circumference around a circle. All the way around. Roundabout, around. Circum. Circum. We're to walk circumspectly. We are, we are called to be watching all the way around. To be sober and watching. Um, in the areas of our life that are easy to see and that other people can see, but also all the way around, even to the harder areas of life, where God sometimes points out things that are um, disappointing and very difficult. But yeah, we are called to be uh, to walk circumspectly, watching for watching, watching for hidden dangers, um, temptations, watching all around. And as I think of that, I think of how um, seagoing vessels used to do. They would have watchmen up in the crow's nest, right? Or a little space up on one of the main masts where someone would crawl up. And from there, he'd have a good view. He would have a circumspect view. He could look all around, 360 degrees. And what were those watchmen doing? What were they? Why were they watching so intently, circumspectly, all the way around? It was because... Uh, a couple different reasons. Number one was for because of danger. You know, there was always the danger of pirates coming in or other enemies in, in other ships or uh, reefs or shallow water or icebergs, those kind of things. So those people, the watchmen up in the crow's nest, were circumspectly kept watch day and night. Second thing that I suppose that they would watch for is for people overboard from their own ship. If somebody accidentally fell overboard, it, often it would be, or it would seem logical that the watchman up in the crow's nest would see that first and could help facilitate a rescue. There's a third thing that watchmen watched for, and that was. Well, that's personified by a man named Rodrigo de Triana, who one day in October of 1492 called out, Land in sight! Land ahoy! He was, he was the watchman on Christopher Columbus's ship. He was the first to see the new, land, uh, the new world. So, watchmen, circumspectly, which we're called to be. We watch for danger. We watch for others. And we watch for the goal. One of these days, uh, heaven will be in sight. 
One of these days, uh, maybe we'll be raptured, similar to what Enoch was. What a day that will be. And we say, even so come, Lord Jesus. So I finish, as I started, with Micah 6.8. Okay, I can't quote that right now. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Shall we kneel for prayer? Our Father in heaven, you have called us to walk with you as Enoch did in those days long ago. 